Friends, we will remain standing for the reading of God's Word on which the sermon is based. And we're going to read from John chapter 1, verse 19 to 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, and why are you baptizing if you neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be refilled to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are in a series from the Gospel of John entitled, Come and See Jesus. So each week we have and we will continue looking at Jesus for who he is. He is the reason for living. He is the word who became flesh. He's the light of the word, of the world, and today we're going to look at Jesus as the Lamb of God. And I would like to start with the first point, talking about John the Baptist. Remember, the person who wrote this gospel is the Apostle John, but he also talked about John the Baptist. There's something peculiar with this person. So my first uh, point in the sermon is the witness to the Lamb of God, none other than John uh, the Baptist. See if I can. Don't have enough uh, superpower to click the uh, next slide, but uh, the guys there will help me. Thank you. So the witness to the Lamb of God John the Baptist, otherwise known as John the Witness in this gospel, was a great and effective leader. He was so obsessed with Jesus. Now, I teach uh, leadership. Uh, that's my day job at university. And I know when I find uh, a leader who is so effective. John the Witness is typically not one of those leaders that 
usually are, are looked at when you want to study uh, biblical leaders. But if you look at uh, what we have written and from other passages in the Gospels, he had a huge influence. He had a huge drawing power. Great crowds from Jerusalem and all Judea went out in droves to hear him preach, to confess their sins, and to be baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist or John the Witness. But not only that, he was great and so effective as a leader because of his self-denying lifestyle. In fact, that authenticated his message. You know, it was said of him, he wore a garment made of camel's hair, much like his predecessor, Elijah. And he ate locusts and wild honey for his breakfast and lunch and dinner. Such a peculiar person. But not only that, he was great because he was so courageous, morally courageous. He took a courageous stance against the corrupt religious leaders, political leaders, and calling them brood of vipers and pronouncing God's wrath upon them. He challenged, in fact, King Herod for his adultery. And for that, he lost his life. But what's um, great about him, the one thing that made him different among other leaders was what's written in John 3.30. Because that's his life theme, that's his life motto, and I do pray and hope that becomes our life motto as well. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater and I must become less. And he's talking about Jesus. So even though that he was so effective in what he did, drawing people, he's got a huge uh, bunch of followers, he knew that he was not Christ. He had to get out of the way to allow Jesus to take the spotlight. He wanted to put the spotlight on Christ, not himself. And that's why when he was asked whether he was Christ, whether he was Elijah, whether he was the prophet, the answer was quite certain. The answer is no. So the first century Jews, if we want to understand the context a little bit, were looking for three people to come on the scene. The Messiah, Elijah and the prophet, or the prophet like Moses. And they were wondering whether John the Baptist or John the Witness was one of those people. So that's why we read the interview that uh, he was given, was responded by a series of negative answers. Are you the Christ? I'm not the Christ. The word Christ, Christos, that means the anointed one. It's the Greek word for Messiah or Messiah. That's the original word. And then, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. If you read Second uh, Kings, you would know that Elijah did not die. He was taken to heaven. There was an expectation that he would come back uh, in the New Testament after the 400 years of silence. So they were expecting Elijah 
to return in end times. He looked like Elijah, but he was not. So are you the prophet? That's the next question. And he said, no. He wasn't a prophet like Moses. So these uh, people who were uh, sent by the religious leaders, they couldn't go back and report. You know, these were all the negative answers that John the Baptist gave us. So they had to come up with something. So that's why they kept asking, but really, who are you then? And then uh, John introduced himself by quoting a scripture from Isaiah 40, verse 3. I'm the voice of one crying out in a wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He was saying, I was just merely the voice, not the substance. I'm just the witness, not the subject. The substance, the subject is Jesus, the Lamb of God. He was basically the voice calling for his audience to make straight the way of the Lord. That is to the call to remove any obstacles that prevent the Lord from entering into a personal relationship with them. So John the Baptist was basically saying to his listeners, get rid of all the traditions, the habits, the views, and all the things in your life that will prohibit you to receive Jesus, the Lamb of God. He essentially said the Messiah is coming, so remove those inhibitors in your life that would stop you from receiving him. Repent of your sins so that he can come and reign over your life. Then the next interview question came, why are you then baptizing? The next uh, slide will show that. If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And he said, I baptize with water, but among you stands the one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. So that's the picture of a, a typical a footwear that men uh, use in those days. I'm not sure what brand that is, but they all look the same, right? Unlike what we wear today. But, but look at John. By, by saying that he's not even worthy to untie the strap of the sandal that Jesus uh, wore at the time, he was saying that, you know, he is, he is an unworthy person. Friends, you need to understand the Jewish rabbis that they thought that a disciple can do any act of labor for his teacher, right? Except one thing, removing his sandal. So if, if you have a teacher and you are a disciple of that teacher, you should do a lot of things to serve that teacher. Unlike uh, the relationship between a student and a professor here in Australia, you know, there's, there's not many things a student can do or should do for their professors, right? When I, went, uh, when I traveled to China, I saw my professor, a colleague of mine, uh, when he, um, we, we drove uh, in the same car, he drove the car, and when we parked, he got out of his car, and suddenly there was a student, a PhD student of his, just uh, bringing his suitcase and giving him umbrella because it was spitting at the time. And I thought, that's 
quite nice. I never had that experience in Australia, right? But in, uh, in Jesus' day, the disciple can do all the things and should do all the things that a slave uh, does except one thing, removing the teacher's sandal because that is so low a job that one can do. It's a job that is only done by a slave. Now John is saying that he is even below a slave because he said I'm even unworthy to untie the sandal of uh, Jesus. See like John, friends, we have to be quite certain, quite adamant on the negatives. That our lives are not about us, it's about Christ. Similarly with our church, this is not about the music, although that's important, what we have um, done every week, we practice the music team, all the friends that are um, helping us with the uh, worship so that we can do our worship so well every single Sunday. But the church is not about the music, it's about Christ. The church is not about the community. Although community is important, we have to show Jesus' love to one another. But the church is not about the community, it's about Christ. The church is not about fine preaching, although preaching is very essential, but it's about Christ. And certainly, church is not about a great coffee, although that's I would hope that you agree with me. It's important to have great coffee on Sunday morning, right? Which is what we have here. But it's about Christ, not about uh, coffee. So we have to emulate John in his obsession with Christ. He was so courageous, and yet he knew when it's time for him to step out of the spotlight and let Jesus take the spotlight. And that's why Jesus himself said of uh, John in Matthew eleven eleven, 11, truly I say to you among those born of uh, women that has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. See, John was greater than any person who was born of a woman. Why? Because of his proximity, his relationship to Jesus, his obsession with Jesus. That's why he, he was great. So that's just the first point. Our response to the Lamb of God, we have to say, I'm nobody compared to him. And all the things that I do in my life have to prepare for the way of the Lord. I have to make sure that everyone I know in my circles can be pointed to Christ Jesus because he is the one who's worthy. I am unworthy. The second uh, thing that we want to look at is the wonder of the Lamb of God. That's the second W, the witness and then the wonder of the Lamb of God. Of God. The next day, Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this, this phrase, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, essentially summarizes the whole Bible. 
If you understand this very sentence, you basically understand the thread of the entire Old Testament and New Testament. But note that John did not present Jesus as a great moral example, nor a great teacher of holiness. He did not say, behold the supreme example, or behold the master teacher, or behold the political crusader, but he said, behold the Lamb of God. And as modern people, we may feel it's really strange to describe a human being as a lamb. I mean, you don't call your friend, you know, one day you saw him coming, him or her coming out of uh, his apartment or her apartment, and you say, behold, the lamb of God. That's just uh, weird, right? I hope no one called you that. But why did uh, John, the witness, call Jesus the lamb of God? Now, the audience, the people who listen uh, at the time to John the Baptist, they understood because for centuries, the Israelites had been sacrificing two lambs daily, one in the morning and the other one in the evening. Now, John identified this lamb as Jesus. So for centuries, they have done that practice to commemorate what happened in the Passover, obviously. And then in, in this New Testament, in the opening pages of the New Testament, suddenly John came to the stage and said, the Lamb of God is Jesus, the one that you have been sacrificing. These are just animals. They do not save you, but this is now the person who would have come to save you. Behold the Lamb of God. So these sacrificial animals are merely symbols that point to this young Galilean guy who's the son of a carpenter, and his name is Jesus. And not only was Jesus the Lamb of God sent for the Israelites, but he was sent for the whole world because he takes away the sin of the world. Now, we don't talk about the concept of sin quite uh, often as we should today, because we always think of sin as something that is naughty but nice. But sin is a serious matter. Sin is when we ignore God as if he doesn't exist and we decide we want to make up our own rules for our lives about how we live. We push God in the periphery and we forgot that God would document every action, every thought, every deed that we do on a daily basis in a video format. One of the, last night we had a family fellowship and I shared one of the scariest texts in the whole Bible, at least to me, is Hebrew 4.13. And it says, that, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked, and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There will be an accounting for every sin, and God knows exactly what you are thinking at this very moment. He knows exactly what you have been saying and doing for the last two hours, two weeks, two months, two years, two decades. He knows every single thing that 
we do and we think and we say. And deep down, you know that God knows. And that's why we feel guilty. We have a conscience that we cannot uh, silence. We feel guilty because precisely we are guilty. And God will punish sin. But now John said that Jesus, the most loving man, I mean, he's described as the lamb. He came and he died to take away the sin of the world. And notice also the second thing that's quite interesting. He did not say the sins in plural, but the sin of the world. That depicts the entire guilt of humanity. You know, as if the whole mass of human transgression was bound together in one black and awful bundle, and then they were laid upon the shoulder of Christ who can bear it all and bear it all away. So the sacrifice of the Lamb of God has all the capacity to forgive your sin, your sin, and every person's sin in the world. It is big enough for the whole world, not just the Jews. And of course, the audience at the time of John the Baptist also knew the story from Genesis 22 when God promised Abram at the time in Genesis 12 before 22, and through his descendants, all nations will be blessed. And after waiting for so long, he gave him a son called Isaac. But then the unthinkable happened. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. So if in Genesis 12, God asked Abram to give up his past, you know, his land, his ancestors, his family, his comfort zone, give up all that, Abram, to me, and you'll be blessed. But now in Genesis 22, God asked Abraham to give up his future, his son, his only son whom he loved dearly. And when the two actually walked to the place where they're going to do this sacrifice, Isaac asked some of the most poignant questions in the whole Bible. He said, behold the fire, behold the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. See, God the Father did something incredibly radical, unimaginable. He did what he did not allow Abraham to do because he walked with his son Jesus from Nazareth to Jerusalem and from Gethsemane to Golgotha and he placed his only son on that same mountain, he placed him on a piece of wood, on a rugged cross, and there he gave up his son to be sacrificed so that you and I, we can be saved. So Jesus is a, the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father, but he was truly sacrificed for us. And it's uh, interesting that it is the Lamb of God, it's not the bull, it's not the goat, but it's the Lamb of God because of the voluntary nature of a lamb. Jesus willingly gave himself as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity. Isaiah 53, 7 says, the Son of God did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearer, 
is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Friends, that's the wonder of the Lamb of God. And this is one of the threads in the Bible. There are perhaps 15 intercanonical themes that you can see in the entire Bible that when you trace these themes, you will understand what the Bible is all about. This is one of them. So you can see that from the first pages of the Bible, from Genesis, and then from Exodus, and now in the New Testament, we have seen the Lamb of God has been prophesied, and now he came to the world. But that's not all. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 5, 6, you know, in the book of Revelation, the name Jesus was not mentioned that often relative to the name the Lamb. He was known in the book of Revelation as the Lamb 29 times that name was used in that book. The same apostle who wrote the Gospel of John and then wrote the book of Revelation, he saw a glorious vision of a slain lamb standing in the midst of God's everlasting throne. And Revelation 21, 27 tells us that the people throughout the ages who take shelter under the blood of the lamb will have their names written in the lamb's book of life. So if in the Old Testament, the question is, where's the lamb? That's what the, uh, the son of Abraham, Isaac, asked his dad. Where's the lamb? And the answer in the New Testament, behold the lamb. That's what John the Baptist said. And we're going to hear the shout throughout eternity, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. So what does it mean? to us, all this truth about Jesus as the Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world, our sins, what does it mean to us? Well, one of the most direct implication is uh, how it affects our self-worth. How it affects our self-worth. So we're going to look at the last point here, our worth in the Lamb of God. Our worth in the Lamb of God of God. See, what, what's interesting is that John the Baptist had a very specific view of himself and of Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, he said, I am unworthy to even untie the strap of his sandal. So his view of himself is quite uh, soft, is quite... Uh, Menial, it's, it's quite low, it's quite uh, insignificant. But his view of Christ, when he talked about Christ, he shouted, behold the Lamb of God. Now this is how you dealt with inferior, inferiority complex, not with superiority complex. See, let, let me share with you what our secular world usually told us when we deal with this problem of insecurity. And you know that millennials today had this huge sense of insecurity relative to their previous generations. I know that stereotyping, perhaps the data are not representative of everyone in the world, but they keep saying that millennials are more insecure than 
the previous generation. And what, what a lot of secular psychologists say, when you feel insecure deep down within your uh, soul, you just have to keep telling yourself that you are worthy. Prove to him or to her or to anyone who challenges you who you are. Don't let them treat you like that. Of course you don't deserve that tone. Don't do it for others, do it for you. Don't do it for your parents, your friends. You know, who cares about them? Just do it for you. See, that is how you deal with inferiority complex, with superiority complex. In the next slide, you can see the differences uh, with these worldviews. The secular worldview said, ignore what people say about you. You are so worthy, love yourself. Now let me speak to parents for a minute. If, if this is the kind of strategy that you use in your parenting, this is not going to work. <laughs> At least this is not accurately biblical because you are essentially having, instilling this self-confidence that is based on the notion that I am great. Now what's interesting is that once we become a religious person, the advice changes a little bit, but it's not really different. Because we often hear in the religious circle the advice that goes something like, ignore what people say about you, similar advice. You are so worthy, but then now there's a God factor. God loves you more than he loves them or anyone. You see, friends, the solution to low self-worth is not to have a high self-worth. The problem is not low self-image or low self-worth or high self-worth. The problem is on self-worth. See, feeling inferior or superior both lead us to focus on self. If you are inferior, you're going to be filled with self-pity. If you feel superior, you will be filled with self-aggrandizement. You feel like you are great. The gospel is quite different. The next slide shows that the gospel gives this advice. Ignore what people say about you, but also ignore what you say about you. Because the only opinion that counts is the opinion of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. So the solution to low self-worth is to accept ourselves as not just sinners, but sinners who are deeply loved by our Redeemer, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Your problem is not your low self-worth. Your problem is you are a great sinner with rebellious thoughts, deceitful hearts, and unclean lips, way more serious than just self-worth issues. The holy wrath of God is rightfully upon you because of your sins. So what you need is not to have high self-worth. What you need is to behold the Lamb of God, to take shelter under the blood of the Lamb so that you can be completely forgiven completely transform 100% as a new person because Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be reproduced 
within you. Now that truth will set you free from the worry of people's evaluation of you. That truth will set you free from your own evaluation of you. Because what matters now is God's evaluation of you and he loves you no matter what. God knows the worst about you and nevertheless, he is the one who loves you the most in Christ Jesus. Let me repeat that again. God knows the worst about you, friends. And yet, he is the one who loves you the most in Jesus Christ. That's the reason why John was so bold and yet so humble. He was so full of conviction, but not full of himself. So if you're not a Christian this morning, can I plead with you, come and see Jesus. Study him. Ask questions about him with any one of us in this church so that once you know him, you come to him and you'll be under the shelter of the blood of the Lamb of God. If you have had this burden of always looking at yourself and you feel that you are unworthy, you have to set your eyes elsewhere to the Lamb of God. Robert Murray McShane once wrote, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Maybe that's what you ought to do this morning. Especially if you have been understanding Jesus merely as a moral teacher, not as a Lamb of God. Christian friends, I want to encourage you to rejoice in the Lamb of God because our sins had been forgiven. And secondly, I want to encourage you to live this life motto that John the Baptist exemplified, less of me, more of him. Think about how you can spotlight Christ in your career, in your study, in your parenting, in your relationship with other people so that you can point them to Christ, in your romantic life, in every single area of your life, how can you spotlight Christ so that he increases and you decrease? And if this is what you believe, do tell others about the Lamb of God. See, you don't really care about your friends if on the one hand you know about this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and you know your friends are in the hell-bound race, as the song we just sang, and you said nothing to them about the Lamb of God. So think about a few names that you may have at the moment and invite them to come to Christ, invite them to this worship service next week because they have a serious issue. It's not their self-worth, it's their sin. Let us come to him in prayer.